0: Today we're speaking to John Sear builder of magical collaborative experiences for public
1: spaces. We were trying to imagine what was coming in the future. What would collaborative play as a kind of visitor experience look like?
0: John describes himself as a games designer and software developer, runner of workshops, a maker of game-like things for public spaces like museums, galleries, and festivals.
1: When you look at the kind of money people are willing to spend to go to the, you know, the big experiences, the punch drunks and the secret cinemas, they're spending hundreds of pounds a night. And when you start to mention those numbers, suddenly there are a few people in the museum where they go oh, okay that sounds interesting different audiences and we could earn money from it hmm, maybe
0: he's multi-talented and incredibly creative developing projects such as a moment of madness which is an urban game where players are on a live stakeout in a car park and renga a 500 player laser game in this episode we discuss all of those things plus john's diy tutorials for museums so that you can build exciting digital things without a huge budget.
1: That's what's good about I think the modern age is that the tools are out there that are free and open source in a lot of cases that allow you to build these things very quickly and cheaply and then once you get started it's kind of like the limits are just your own imagination.
0: We'll take a look at John's approach for creating games that are fun, educational and true to the venue and also learn the importance of storytelling. We really enjoyed speaking to John. And we think that you're going to enjoy this too.
1: Get people excited first and then worry about the kind of educational content afterwards.
0: Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast that celebrates professionals working in the visitor attraction sector. What do we mean by visitor attractions? Well, it's an umbrella term for a huge range of exciting organisations that are must-sees. Think museums, theme parks, zoos, farms, heritage sites, tour providers, escape rooms, and much, much more. They're tourist hotspots or much-loved local establishments that educate, engage, and excite the general public. Those who work in visitor attractions often pour their heart and soul into providing exceptional experiences for others. In our opinion, they don't get the recognition that they deserve for this. We want to change this. Each episode, we'll share the journeys of inspiring leaders. We'll celebrate their achievements and dig deeper into what really makes their attractions successful, both offline and digitally. Listen and be inspired as industry leaders share their innovative ideas, services and approaches. There's plenty of valuable information you can take away and put into action to create better experiences for your own guests. Your hosts for this podcast are myself, Kelly Molson and Paul Wright. We're the co-founders of Rubber Cheese, an award-winning digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for visitor attractions. Find out how we can create a better experience for you and your guests at rubbercheese.com. Search Skip the Q on iTunes and Spotify to subscribe. You can find links to every episode and more over on our website rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast. We hope that you enjoy these interviews. And if there's anyone that you think that we should be talking to, please just send us a message. John, welcome to our Skip the Q podcast. Thank you for coming on today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me on.
0: Now, your bio describes you as a builder of magical collaborative experiences for public spaces, and I think that is probably one of the coolest job titles I've ever read. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: <laughs> uh, thank you. I mean, yeah, I've, I've, I kind of flip and flop a lot really about what my job title should be because it's, it's quite confusing as well as being cool. Um, <laughs> so at the moment, I am a real world game designer. That's my kind of brief but that kind of confuses people as well because it's like making video games, but video games that take place in the real world. And I know when I've explained it to people before, like I was at a, a tech conference, like half of my job is kind of tech, half of it is kind of design. So I was at a tech conference recently talking about what I do. And at the end of it, the guy was like, that sounds like a really nice hobby you've got there. And I was like, oh. yeah, that's, that's <laughs> actually my job. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so I, I confuse most people, I think. Um, but, yeah basically what it what it means is that i take my game design skills and my software engineering skills and sort of the kind of modern making um and kind of put that all together to build experiences that take place in the real world so that can be things like escape games uh immersive theater things that take place in museums galleries libraries festivals car parks theme parks all sorts of crazy places um but yeah most people think my job sounds amazing so I should probably not ruin uh, that illusion for them.
0: (laughs) So, how did you get to how did you get to where you are now? You've got a long history in game design. How did you go from that to what you do now?
1: Sure. So, there's a short. I'll do do the short version, and then you can decide if you want me to dip into the longer version um, because it's about twenty years. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I left university and did what I thought was my dream job of uh, working in the games industry proper, the AAA games industry. So, like when we think of video games on Xbox and PlayStation and PC. So I did that for about four years. And while it was enjoyable and I worked with some amazing people, it wasn't where I wanted to be. So then I left the AAA world to go and work in academia. So I set up a degree course, teaching people how to get jobs in the games industry, but with the caveat that I'd left the games industry because I didn't really enjoy it loads. And then while doing that, I had a few other companies on the side. So I had a company that made... uh, iphone games and xbox games during the kind of first there was a kind of digital download rush when the iphone was first released in 2008 2010 that sort of era um and then eventually it got to this point where i was doing all these things there was a big rush in the iphone world which you know produced a lot of wealthy people in a short amount of time but gradually that space got very uh saturated and the games you could make in that space were kind of less interesting and they needed more money to do it. And there'd been this big rise in independent games. So uh, people that were experienced in making games leaving bigger developers to go, go it alone. This was kind of the first time that sort of period, like the 2008 to 2010, um, where people could do that. They could actually make games for Xbox or PlayStation or iPhone without a big publisher behind them. And so it meant there were a lot of kind of indie developers then. And so I sort of tried to jump onto that bandwagon. And I was kind of getting bored of making things for small devices, uh, like, you know, Xboxes or iPhones or Android tablets. I wanted to make things that took place in the real world. So I me and a friend of mine started a business and we made a game called Renga, which probably gets mentioned somewhere on my website, uh, which was a 500 player Uh, game experience that took place originally for movie theaters um, but it got shown outdoors as well at festivals and so that was my kind of that's my transition really from doing things for indoor spaces to the kind of uh, we use different terms in different industries that we would call that the out of home experiences right um, or visitor attraction experiences Um, so the jump from making things for small scale to making things for festivals and obviously, I sort of left behind all of my knowledge um, from AAA world of how to sell box products or sell digital download games to suddenly having to, you know, sell games where people bought tickets for it or it took place in a cinema or took place at a festival. And so it was quite different. Um, and I'd say that back then, there were a lot of people from theatre who were making things that were more game-like. So you might have come across people like Punch Drunk, um, in the kind of immersive theater world or secret cinema. But yes. there were very few people going the other way, like taking their games knowledge and going into kind of theatrical things. And still, I think that's quite a niche thing. So, so from about 2010 to 2013, uh, we built and toured this giant Renga game. And then since then, I've just been attracted by making experiences for public spaces. And that's really what's led me to work with museums and castles and art galleries because they have people and they have amazing spaces. So it kind of all makes sense. Sorry, that was supposed to be the short version. It wasn't really very short, was it? But uh, <laughs> that's, that's that was the transition anyway. That's perfect. So
2: um, can you give us a bit of a an idea of what a 500 person game for a festival or cinema looks like?
1: Yeah, I should have done that really. But yeah, that's a good question. So Renga was built so that it still looks a bit like a video game. But it's really about how five hundred people organize themselves. So uh, we've shown this in lots of different spaces, but the the classic is in a in an enormous auditorium, you know in a movie theater. So you have five hundred people seated. We give out laser pointers to the audience. Uh, the laser pointers are used to control the action that happens on the screen. So it's a ninety minute experience. I um, mean it's quite a deep strategic game. Um, And it looks a bit like a space retro game when you're playing. But it's really an exercise in how do 500 people somehow um, collaboratively control the experience. Um, So it's quite quite unusual in the sense that, you know, people don't make these huge games. But from a technological point of view, it's a bit like turning the cinema screen into a giant touchscreen. So each of the laser pointers acts a bit like a finger that can kind of touch the screen. And anything you want to do in the game, you have to do as a group. So you have to somehow sort of self-organize uh, yourself just purely by laser dots of light on the screen into doing different things. Oh, gosh. Um, it's, qu- yeah, it's quite unusual. And it's one of those things that people go, I don't think I really want to play that until they actually start playing it. And they go, oh, wow, this is uh, this is quite different to what I was expecting. It doesn't matter how many times I explain it. I never do a very good job, I'm afraid. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a really interesting thing of like how how you can get different experiences happening in theatres. So we would show this, uh, we did, we showed it at loads of film festivals because they would be showing traditional films. And then alongside it, they'd go, okay, people are making games for, for cinema now. So let's have a look at one of those. And then what they would do is they would invite like actually quite a lot of the top directors actually got to see this because we showed it at places like uh, the New York film festival and the Toronto film festival. And, you know, some of the bigger ones Um, and they would invite uh, directors into the, auditorium to go look what's happening right because there's obviously there's a limit to the sorts of feelings and experiences you can create with film mm. um, and it's a different experience when people are playing a game so suddenly you've got people within the audience that love and hate each other and are high-fiving and hugging and running around it's it's very much like a midnight madness experience as like people try and control it you know ultimately everyone's got an individual laser pointer everyone can do anything they want no one's in control of them but some people get the game a bit more than others. And so they're shouting out advice or standing up in front of the screen even to try and organize
2: teams into doing things.
1: Did that make any sense?
2: It sounds amazing. <laughs> what other examples of uh, games like that have you created? I mean, that's the,
1: that's the biggest game I think I've created in terms of there's 500 simultaneous players um, over like a 90 minute experience. Uh, often I talk about the work I do as being a bit like escape rooms. So I started doing this stuff in about 2010 um, and we were trying to imagine what, what was coming in the future. What would collaborative play out of the home as a kind of visitor experience look like? And we dismissed experiences like escape games really back then because we thought that um, even though they didn't really exist en masse, there'd been a few experiments into them and it felt like people wouldn't be willing to pay um, you know, the 20 or 30 pound a person for a one hour experience that they absolutely are willing to pay um it turns out um so we kind of misread the future direction but one of the advantages of of, of escape games existing I mean i i can just say well the things i make are a bit like escape games and with that i do build escape games so i build large-scale escape games as well they're the i think they're the closest things that i do to rengo in terms of 500 players so for a number of like museum conferences or science center conferences Um, both in Europe and over in uh, Asia, I built sort of 100-player escape game experiences. So whereas in a normal escape game, there might be six of you or 10 of you locked in a room, uh, and it sounds like you guys have played a few of these. Um, (laughs) So I've I've built a number of like pop-up experiences where you might have, I don't know, 10 tables in a room, and each table has got a mini escape game on it, and then those mini escape games kind of interact with each other. So you might put, I don't know, 10 people around each table. Um, and then as the game progresses, it turns out in order to complete the game, the tables have to kind of collaborate together. So I think the largest ones I've done of those are about 100 uh, hundred people.
2: So are all the games and uh, they're digital games on each table?
1: Um, no, I mean, not always. I mean, because my background is digital, I use a combination of digital and physical or analog. Um so, so yeah. So, most most of the games I make have a digital element. So, for example, most of my escape games would have uh, probably at least a device such as a phone or something that is a phone but is masquerading as some other piece of equipment, uh, which might unlock parts of the story, uh, or you might use it to scan things. So, I'm a big fan of technologies like eye beacons and near-field communication. So you might use the phone to scan physical objects and that might play a video or play some audio on the phone as you're using it. But sometimes that phone is like in a case. So it's, you know, it's some kind of you know, piece of equipment that the players have found that's a useful scanning device. Like it might be masquerading as a hospital scanner or something. So you scan a patient and then you get some readout. You know, but essentially it's a mobile phone in a fancy case. John, one of the
0: one of the questions I had for you is, I know that you work with galleries, libraries, archives, museums, which are you know classified as GLAMs. When when you're talking to these venues, what do you think is the biggest benefit of them using you? You know, what what's the biggest benefit to them to having uh, a game or, or, or some kind of interactive element in in those venues?
1: um I guess the the biggest reason to work with me is because I'm quite a nice person really you are good enough it's good enough for us um, I mean it depends what they're looking for right I I build different things for museums so sometimes I build what we'd call I guess an, an interactive so a kind of standalone experience um that might be uh like a touch screen or something that you interact with with a camera uh like a connect sensor um and I'm I did do quite a lot of uh, touch table, collaborative touch table experiences for museums, particularly around Birmingham, actually. And there's still still quite a few of those installed. Uh, that's a piece of technology that I, I actually really like because um, I'm interested in bringing people together in these spaces. So the idea that you can have an experience in a museum that you can't have at home, I think is is quite important. And things like large scale touch screens allow that um so i do yeah i build those kind of things one off interactive things but i think probably what i'm more passionate about is building experiences that are a bit more kind of museum or gallery wide so uh one way you could think of it is a bit like a kind of a, a more high tech version of a of a trail you know we want a way that we take people take visitors around the museum but in a different way to what they're normally doing and maybe get them to look at different things so while I like to use a lot of technology in what I make, generally I like to kind of keep the technology hidden away, which is why I often talk about it as being magical, but mostly about not trying to detract from what's already there. Like museums and galleries and, you know, castles and all of these places, I've just they're already amazing scenarios, right? They're already incredible spaces. So what I try and do is not to detract from that, but to enhance it with technology. So often like I use a lot of audio in, in what I do. So perhaps the... The device the technology stays in your pocket while you're still kind of walking around the space Um, that works quite nicely Um, i've been doing some stuff with a national trust property which is closer to immersive theater so a bit like an escape game but you play it around the entire venue and if you think of some of the games that that are out there escape games that are out there and probably some that you've played often what they're trying to do is they're trying to replicate these spaces that Already exist in the cultural space, mm. um, so they might be trying to make you know like a I don't know like the office where Sherlock Holmes is based, or they might be trying to replicate a castle. Well, you know, in the in the cultural attraction world or or the glam world, we've already got those spaces, and they're already completely authentic because they already exist. So what I like to try and do is kind of layer a game experience on top of what's already there. Um, so one that hopefully will go in a national trust property sometime next year is actually one where players are essentially spies they're working for a secret organization and they are operating um within this national trust property but one of the advantages of being a spy is that the whole point is you're not supposed to get caught right so um so you're supposed to be acting as if you are a normal visitor and this is one of the problems right when you when you set a game in a space like a museum or a castle or a you know a historic building people behave differently and we don't always want them to behave differently when they're, you know, when there's all these kind of priceless artifacts everywhere. Yeah. So using these themes whereby the whole point is you're not supposed to get caught and you're supposed to be like a visitor, but secretly you're a spy doing interesting things. Um, that mechanism works quite well, I think, um, and that we can reuse it again and again.
2: I'd love to get a bit of an understanding of what happens with these venues. What do they decide? Do they decide they will need some immersive game in their venue and then they put a brief out there and, and then you come up with ideas for that brief or is it, how does it, <laughs> Yeah. No,
0: how do they know they need you? Yeah. How do they, yeah. Know?
2: yeah
1: they don't really <laughs> often. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think probably they, some, some people see me talk at conferences and things, or they might've used, I've got a series of kind of free tutorials online, which are designed to kind of help museums build their own things. So I think most people, Talk to me first, and then I try and convince them they need me rather than they know that they need me and come looking for me. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, normally they say, "Okay, I'm, we're looking to build uh, an interactive in a museum that does this, or we're looking to build a, you know, an app that our visitors use," and then that is normally the start of a conversation of, "Well, why do you need an app, or why do you think you need an app, and what are you trying to do with that?" And these are all the problems with that, and these are the costs of it, and these are the other things you could do with the same amount of money. Um, and then people would normally look pretty terrified uh, so um, <laughs> yeah I mean o- occasionally um, some museums are aware of things like immersive theatre and they're interested enough to go okay how could we use you know, these new types of experiences within our spaces but I mean I think most, most places are kind of feeling that out at the moment they don't really know they need it they're, they're not really sure they want it there's a few places that are like they can see the benefits. You know, we can attract a different audience demographic yeah. or we can open at different times. So with National Trust properties, typically they you know, they have a lot of business with a certain demographic during the day, but then those properties are closed in the evening. Well, actually, you know, at least a couple of nights a week, we could actually set a large scale immersive theatre piece in there, um, which would bring people in and you could also sell to them food and drinks. You know, and when you look at the kind of money people spend are willing to spend to go to the you know the big experiences the punch drunks and the secret cinemas they're spending hundreds of pounds a night and when you start to mention those numbers suddenly there are a few people in the museum world that go oh, okay that sounds interesting different audiences and we could earn money from it mm, maybe but there aren't many kind of big examples of that to look to so it's definitely still early days um in that sense
0: so I guess it comes it comes back to something that we that that keeps coming up over and over again in terms of using tech it, it's about using tech to enhance the venue and engage with a different audience at different times so essentially it is about driving more footfall from different people
1: yeah i mean that, that that's obviously the appeal i think and i think people realize they need something that's a bit more unique that's a bit more attractive you know and it's not just okay everyone has got an app now we need to make sure we've got an app or well, Mm. there's quite a lot of evidence out there that's showing that 's not really working, and generally it 's you know it 's a bit of a block isn 't it? I mean you've probably had experience with this, but like you know and a museum produces an app because they feel like they need an app, and then of course, the problem they 've got is how do they convince their visitors to install the app yeah, and they probably haven 't done it before they 've arrived at the venue, so then they 've got to get on wi fi and they 've got to download it, and then they have to use the most precious thing. In the world, which is their battery life on their phone, right? Nobody, (laughs) nobody wants to give up their battery life on their phone. So, you know, there's there's lots of issues with that an app is the solution to everything. Um, And that's not to say that I don't use apps for some of the venues that I work with, but most of the time I will try and persuade them to also supply the phones with it. I mean, that's always a difficult sell because the reason that museums love things like apps is because it means they don't have to manage the technology. Yeah, know, exactly. which is a, a huge headache. But if you want people to actually use it in really big numbers, it's much easier just to hand them a device as they walk in the building than it is to go, okay, we need to get you on the Wi-Fi, and then you need to download this thing, and then you need to set up an account, and then you need to go hit like all of that. Each one of those things is a barrier, so it, it slows it down, and you lose people. So obviously, we're seeing more people move towards like just you know websites that allow people to you know hook straight into it and use things in conjunction with the space rather than the kind of full download of an app.
2: Or progressive web apps as well.
1: Exactly, yeah. John, you
0: talked a little bit earlier about the game where you could pretend to be a spy. So it was kind of keeping people acting in a certain way. You also talk a lot about the importance of storytelling, which we, I mean, we that's important to us as well. It's one of the one of the key things that we talk about in terms of your website how do you work with the museums and the galleries to to find those stories? Do you do you help them create them collaboratively? Do you suggest what would work best for their space?
1: Um yeah, I guess it's a combination really. I mean the I mean that's one of the best things about working with cultural spaces, right? Is they have so much history and so much storytelling. I mean it's what they do, right? They collect stories from throughout the ages. And they've got thousands to draw on. So really, I mean the problem is choosing from all of those um when you've got so much and so what are the stories that they've already got that fit in best with what we're trying to do i mean there's no right answer to all of that i mean often the, the kind of shortcut i guess is that people are interested in people right so so normally if you can find a story that's got a good character a good protagonist you know a real person at the heart of it that's normally where we start from i think but yeah the, the problem is choosing from the many varied stories um rather than kind of building something from scratch
2: if we go back to the game making i'm really interested about this about how you come up with ideas for games would you have any tips uh, like how to create interactive games uh that's a big question <laughs> <laughs> i
1: used to run a, a four-year degree course on this very subject so oh, well wow. so if i can summarize that in uh in like 10 seconds i think probably one of the one of the problems I have. And I mean, my, my company is called Museum Games, which is a kind of like, it does what it says on the tin type name. Um, but it's I actually find making games for museums one of the hardest things. Because um, normally what we're thinking about, we're thinking about like an interactive. So a single place within the museum or cultural space where you go to and interact with a device of some kind, that might be a touch screen. It might be something with big buttons on it. It might be a camera-based thing. So all of those. And for me, the things that are most interesting about games is is the kind of deepness to them. They're quite deep experiences. They're really engaging. You can learn from them. But we're trying to do that in a public space in museums, which makes it much harder. Like, How do you get people properly engaged in the experience when potentially there's an audience around them watching what they do? That makes it quite hard. And also the museums themselves, uh, as great as they are to work with, obviously one of their primary reasons is to educate the public. And so it's really hard to drop the educational part. I mean, this this would be the the biggest tip really for me is to make games that are firstly fun experiences and less focus on the educational part. You know, if you're busy playing a game for 10 minutes, um, you can have a really fun experience. You can have a great time. Um, You might get some good photos out of it for social media. But ultimately, we want you to be excited and then keen to learn more about whatever the topic is we've chosen, I don't know, the Tudor period or something. But I'm not going to build a game that's going to mean that you're going to learn all the kings of England, for instance. You know, and I, I think that's, that's one of the problems and one of the barriers to working with museums is there's a kind of like, you know, okay, the, well, this game needs to be all of those things that all these other games are, but it also needs to be educational. Um, and you're like, well, if I sat down a player with like the list of Tudor kings or something, for the next 10 minutes and made them revise it, by the end of it, they probably wouldn't remember these things anyway. So for me, it's much more about, let's make a thing that is fun and enjoyable and makes people want to spend time in the museum and makes people want to learn more about these things going forward. You know, so if you used a particular character from history in the game, and as long as afterwards, there's some sort of direction that says, okay, you can learn more about this particular king or there's some interesting stories about this queen or whatever it is. As long as there's a kind of, you know, hand holding to the next thing that I mean, that's the thing that I'm most happy about, really. Get people excited first and then worry about the kind of educational content afterwards. Sorry, I turned that question in like that wasn't really a kind of tip on how to make interactive games. That was really my gripe. I guess. but
0: <laughs> No, it's great. I mean, it really comes through how passionate you are about it. I guess it is, it is again, coming back to kind of making sure that whatever you're creating from a gaming or technology basis ties in with the, the culture and the heritage and the education side of the venue that you're in as yeah. well. Yeah, so you've, about you've it, said it, it much
1: better to. than I did, actually. It's just, <laughs> I think it's just very, it's hard to make a game that, you know, and, and games, the, the best part of them is how deep they are and how immersed you can get in them. When actually... People are walking through a space and they have only got a few minutes to play this game. And actually, we don't want them from the museum point of view. We don't want them standing there playing a game for two hours because that uses up the device, the interactive. So to make a game that's like deep and also quick is quite hard. So, I mean, a lot of the the games that you see in museums are really much more toy like. You know, they're these kind of little things you can have a little play with for a few minutes. Um, But really, we need to get you on and moving around the space to see the next thing.
0: So tell us a little bit more about DIY museum tutorials, because you actually give away a lot of kind of free content and a lot of things to help museums do this themselves as well, don't you?
1: Yeah, I do. That's nice of me, right? It's very nice. (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously, there's other good reasons, right, to be sharing stuff. And ultimately, like the stuff that I do on a day to day basis, I'm always learning. And there's loads of people online that share their knowledge that help me get to the place I am. So it's just sort of my way of Uh, contributing something to the kind of shared uh, knowledge sphere, shall we say. So this set of tutorials um, was really designed for museums that can't afford to or don't have a lot of technological skills in-house. I mean, most museums don't have a lot of money at the best of times. They might get money when they have a, a round of funding come in for a particular project. But the rest of the time, they're kind of scraping things together. So it was really about taking some of the projects that I've worked on, where I've actually been paid to do them, And then trying to show people how you could build a kind of a simpler version yourself, not quite to the same level, um, but without spending much money and spending a bit of time. So either you've got people in your museum who have got a little bit of an interest in tech, or you've got volunteers in your museum that are happy to kind of have a bit of a play. And so these were very much, these tutorials, there's about seven or eight now, um, they're very much geared towards smaller museums who have got no money, but might have some volunteers. And that volunteer is happy to kind of get their hands a little bit dirty. So, I mean, it doesn't go very technical at all. It's designed so the hardest thing is kind of using an app on a mobile phone. It's not even things like setting up a Raspberry Pi or setting up an Arduino, which I know is a is a big barrier. I mean, it's it's, it's lovely for me that these these get used so widely. I get fantastic messages from all over the world where people have set up one of these things in New Zealand or Africa or America. Which is really lovely to hear about. I mean, the most popular ones are uh, the Babbling Beasts uh, tutorial, and that is using a technology called NFC, Near Field Communication, to trigger media. And it started off as a project to kind of make cuddly toys talk. So you basically take ah, a cuddly right. toy okay. and you put a mobile phone inside the cuddly toy and you record some audio a bit like a kind of build the bear type thing. Mm-hmm. You record it straight onto the mobile phone. You put some NFC tags around your space. And if you've not seen NFC technology before, you probably used it at some point because it's the same technology um, every time you go to Tesco's and buy something with your contactless credit card. It's that same wireless connectivity. Right. So all of the media, all of the audio stays on the device. So that means you don't need to have any kind of Wi-Fi access. Which is great if you're, you know, a national trust building or a castle where you've got big thick walls, um, and then it's just a case of literally you take the cuddly toy over to a your tag your marker and when you scan it, um, the cuddly toy talks to you, and so you can do a serious version of that. It doesn't need to be in a cuddly toy. You know your your mobile phone um, can be in anything you like. You can put it in a little wooden box or you can make a little case. We've had people uh, they've had like knitting groups knit cases for them, which has been lovely. Um, for some museums um, but essentially a way of like just triggering audio or video but without even needing to touch the device you just literally hold the device up to some kind of tag and again the tag can look like anything you want because the tag can stay behind something so you can put it behind wood um, if you want to or behind a sign or you can put an array of tags out there so a- anywhere you touched your phone against the whole display would trigger the audio so it's it's very much a thing of like let's get people in and using technology really quickly. And then once you've got the hang of it, you can see how far you want to go with it. So you can push it further and further. So there's some ideas there by, you know, you can do multi-language versions of this tour if you want, where you can do a French version and a German version and an Italian version, as well as your English version. And so before the tour starts or at any point in the, in the tour, you can scan a flag. And then as you go round, you get the tour in that particular language.
0: Oh, that's brilliant, isn't
1: it? We've done versions with like kids and adult tours. So the, the tags are the same throughout, but one is told in a kind of more serious way. And another one might be told through a character like a small dog or a cat or something.
0: So I guess that's a really good way of trialing something, seeing what the uptake is. Um, it's, it's an MVP isn't it you know minimal viable mm. product try this out see what happens you can do this all yourself and then if it's brilliant and it gets the results you want get us in and we'll do you a bigger version of it
1: yeah I mean ultimately <laughs> that is, would be nice but at the same time I'm totally happy for people not to call me in to do it if they've made something brilliant great and the idea being is once they've started doing it they get a bit more confidence yeah. they might want to make that more game-like or you know so it could be a choose your own adventure style thing it could be quiz based but yeah, you're right. Some people do do then call me in afterwards um, and build a kind of a more advanced one. So I've just finished doing a, a National Trust version with a company called Outside Studios and that's running up at the workhouse near Nottingham. Uh, and that's using phones as kind of media players. And so as you walk around the space, um, which doesn't have a lot of interpretation in the space, a lot of it comes through the, the phone or the tablet, you can just scan things as you go and so you know we've made a, a nicer version it's a bit more uh flash it does a few more things it's got better better housing different updates so there's a lot yeah there's lots of ways that i can sort of do better versions for people but you absolutely don't need to call me in for this it's uh the idea is, is yeah build your own and if you're happy with that then great
0: I love that. Do you get people kind of sending you, look what we've done? We've we've used the tutorial and look what we've created.
1: It's lovely, yeah. I I love getting like emails from people like from all over the world telling me what they've done with it. And then, yeah, like photos on Twitter, you know, you just see kids with cuddly toys in museums. You're like, oh, that's brilliant. You know, it's really nice. You know, so it's nice nice to be able to share and put something back. Um, And so, yeah, so the Babbling Beast one is popular. There's a touchscreen one that's very popular as well, like how to build really simple touchscreens using PowerPoint. Most people kind of cringe a little bit when I say PowerPoint, but the good thing is is that everyone can use PowerPoint or have been forced to use PowerPoint <laughs> at some point in their life <laughs> to create a horrible slideshow. Um, but you can build interactives with it. And the latest version is really impressive, actually. The, I ran a workshop a couple of weeks ago, um, which was using PowerPoint to build projection-mapped experiences in museums. Um, oh, wow. And the latest version of PowerPoint supports 3D models, so you can have animated 3D models. And it also has quite a lot of motion graphics in there as well. So you can do some quite fancy looking interactives using PowerPoint, and no one would ever guess that you're using it. But again, it's this idea of, like like you say, a minimum viable product, but just giving people enough confidence they can build a little thing with it. And once they've got over that first hurdle, they go, okay, what can it do next? Okay, how do we add video to this? How do we add audio? How do we add a 3D model? And it's just nice you can build on the, you know, build something really quickly and then build on that knowledge. That's brilliant.
2: I've noticed in your bio that you're, you're uh, interested in interactive fiction. Oh yeah! Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, so interactive fiction
1: covers a, a wide range of experiences. I mean, originally, it kind of meant the choose-your own adventure books. If you've come across those,
0: oh yeah, yep.
1: So I grew up with these, and there's a, there's a number of different uh, versions of them. But I, I grew up with the kind of original choose-your own adventure. I think more recently they're called Goosebumps, people know them as. Um, but there was a lot of different versions of this. And we've even seen it, I think, last Christmas through Black Mirror, like the Bandersnatch.
0: Bandersnatch,
1: yep. On a side note, I actually, for that workshop I did recently, showing people what you could do with PowerPoint, I built uh, a mini version of Bandersnatch, as in taking the video clips from it. And I built that in PowerPoint to show you could do it. Um, sorry, oh, wow. that's completely aside, really. But I, the, that. That, I don't work for Microsoft, and I don't earn anything if uh, you use it. But it's actually in a, it's actually a really good bit of equipment, like a really good tool these days, and it's got like other oh,
0: presentation software is available.
1: I'm sure it is, but just use that. <laughs> it's actually fine. now. It's 30 years old, so it should be should be reasonable. Um, yeah. So, so interactive fiction obviously started with people like Edward Packard, who's the kind of you know one of the fathers of these choose your own adventure books back in the kind of late 70s early 80s i want to say somewhere around then and so they had the classic thing of like you'd read through a page or two of the book and at the end of it you would get to make choices you know do you want to go into the cave or do you want to leave and jump on a horse and you know ride out into the wilderness you know you'd make those choices um and ultimately you'd have like a hundred pages and maybe 20 different endings you'd go through and so you know i quite enjoyed playing those but they're, they're just quite a they're quite a simple touch point that most people understand in terms of building things that are interactive. Uh, you know, the the simple choices you get to make um, as you go through is quite a common, commonly understood thing. So it's so in the babbling beast example, we could actually very easily make those trails choose your own adventure style trails. But actually, in more in more recent terms, I mean, interactive fiction is a kind of means a wider thing. It means like any any type of uh, fiction or text-based experience where you can have some kind of choice in it. And in the last five or 10 years, there's been some fantastic tools that have made this much easier. So in, in the old days, you might have experienced like text adventures on kind of BBCs and Spectrums and PCs back in the kind of 80s and 90s. I don't know if you're quite as old as me, um, but these were the... We are, John. Okay. We are. <laughs> so you might have experienced these <laughs> things. But then more recently, there's been some fantastic web-based tools like Twine, um, and again actually uh i've got a tutorial based on this because i i quite enjoy teaching people how to build their own interactive fiction stories and twine is an incredibly simple piece of technology to use and again you start simple building um choose your own adventure style choices then as you get more into it you can use more programming language um variables and things to make it a bit more richer but yeah i've seen people do all sorts of interesting stuff in tools like twine i mean that that That's what's good about, I think, the modern age is that the tools are out there that are free and open source in a lot of cases that allow you to build these things very quickly and cheaply. And then once you get started, it's kind of like the limits are just your own imagination. Uh, So so there's been a whole movement, really, with Twine uh, where people that aren't really anything to do with games have come from different spaces and have been able to build really quite complicated and interesting games telling very personal stories which has been really interesting and every year there's interactive fiction competitions, so you can look at the kind of things that people are making in this space and then I did some work with trying to put these in museums so if you go back through my kind of website history you'll see me discussing this a few years ago Um, there were some fantastic experiences where you were in the museum while having a similarly related experience. So for example, there was an experience where you had a book that was written. It was a, a, a film script. And you could sit in the museum and read the script. And actually what they have done is they have built the set around you out of things that were in the museum. So as you read about, I don't know, like someone playing a piano off in another room, actually there is a piano just off in another room. And it turns out someone might be playing that at the same time. Or, you know, there might be a bookcase alongside you and some of the books that are being referenced in the story you're reading are actually on that bookcase. So there's something powerful about experience in the story while you're sitting in the space. Yeah. So I was actually trying to get museums to to build interactive fiction games or stories while being in the space using technology like Twine. So you might have, a I don't know, like a castle. Um, and actually you don't interact directly with the space at all, but you just stand or sit in the space while the story happens. You can intertwine the real experience of you being in the real physical space with the virtual, which in this case, the interactive fiction games could be played on a touchscreen or you could play them on a website. So you could play them on your mobile phone, but it might be that in the interaction fiction game, in order to progress, you might need to know the name of the painter in the painting in the far room. So actually, while playing the game, you have to physically walk into the fire room, look at the painting, engage with it, perhaps look for something in the scene or look at who the painter was, and then use that in the virtual game you're playing as well. So a way of kind of tying these two things together. But technically, it was incredibly simple. And if you want to do this, again, there's a a tutorial available which teaches you how to. um, And really simple. And And I just wanted to see more museums kind of play with that idea, you know, building games that are set in the space they're already in but without getting too worried about the technology.
0: Um, we will be, for our listeners, be linking to all of the things that John's been talking about today. So they'll be in the show notes and we will also be having this podcast transcribed as well. John, I want to ask you about a challenge that we we keep hearing over and, over and over again from kind of museum world and visitor attraction world. And some of the challenges they have are obviously engaging with new different audiences, which we've talked about. But one of the biggest challenges that comes up is repeat visitors and how they can engage with the same people and get them to come back over and over again. What, what kind of advice can you offer in terms of uh, how to bring people back to a, a space? And then how often do you have to be looking at refreshing the game or the interactive activity that you've got to kind of re-engage with the same people?
1: it's mm. probably a really long question <laughs> no, it's, a, well, it's a very good question yeah because the repeat visitor thing is quite a hard one mm. um and there's lots of different reasons that people go back to museums or cultural things again and again i mean a, a lot of this comes down to you know a problem that all of us face with building vis- visitor attraction type experiences it's just that people are generally quite time poor um you know they don't have a lot of time once they get through their kind of you know all the kind of day-to-day grind and work and family and commitments often they're out seeking things that are kind of new and unique that is difficult obviously with the, the repeat visitor thing i mean the classic way that most of the larger institutes deal with this is obviously through their you know temporary exhibition spaces that you would refresh every three to six months or whatever to give people a new thing they come and see and then obviously there's problems with that, which is often those are paid experiences and they're quite premium products, unless perhaps you're on a you know, an annual pass of some kind. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of the smaller museums, they make the basic stuff work really well, right? You know, like the cafes and things, the yep. things that you're going to use again and again. So this isn't very technical, obviously. But like, uh, so for us in, in Birmingham, we use two of Birmingham Museum Trust places a lot. Uh, we use mag Bowen museum and art gallery uh and we use think tank which is the kind of science museum because of they've got fantastic cafe spaces and they're quite family friendly so often we'll go in there knowing that it ticks those boxes and then we'll go and see other stuff i mean you know i'm, I'm going in there for the cultural reasons the rest of my family not so so normally we start off there with people having a coffee and things and then i'll drag them off to go and see different things every time <laughs> but that, i mean that's more from a kind of personal point of view from kind of the the, the game wise thing i mean it depends on the types of games you're making um and who you're targeting it at i mean obviously kids generally will play the same game again and again yeah. um whereas adults generally don't uh, you know we're, we're constantly looking for the new thing we're looking for the new show the new film we're not watching the same series again and again generally we'll we're waiting for the next series to come um so we're expecting to see something new every time whereas kids actually like the familiarity of doing the same thing again um which makes it quite difficult i guess to make something that's engaging for both parents and families with games there are different types of games right there are there are games which are much more a single pl- playthrough, which might be a you know a story-based thing, where it's about unlocking all of the story, but on subsequent playthroughs, you could have more things you can unlock, right? So, I mean, you can have side quests that you don't, you might not do the first time round, but the second time you might do. Um, or we have things like score-based games, whereby you play the game again and again in order to get a better score. Um, yeah, I'm not sure whether those are enough reasons that people would come back again and again. I'm generally happy if people come once and play the experience. And often that means that uh, some of the things that I run will run at set times. So they might run as part of a festival. That is the model that people like the funders, such as arts council seem to be following now, which is we know that that visitors will come out for new, interesting things, right? So, again talking about Birmingham specifically we're quite lucky that we have like during the summer months particularly we have different festivals happening just about every weekend and so then every time you come to somewhere like a like a museum one of the big museums there'll be a different offering because it's taking part in a different festival so there'll be you know a few of the front of house things are changing but often that means is that some of the games that I build or help people build are built very quickly with the idea they might only run for that you know for that one weekend or it might be used for a number of kind of temporary things but that also means we can use live people to add to the game experience as well which is quite nice
0: That sounds really fun and i guess it's, you've got quite a lot of flexibility in what you're doing because you're having to be a bit more agile about the time that it's on the time of year that it's on the venue space that it's going to be on and, and how many people are going to be coming in and and, and playing those games
1: yeah with them um, i mean with, with solely digital games so, so some of the games i make are kind of entirely digital And they're not supervised. So you might pick up a tablet or something or a device um, that you play on. But then there's no involvement from anyone else. Well, that means that game has to kind of work flawlessly all the way through. It takes a lot more work to do. It needs to deal with all the cases where people get lost and aren't sure where they're going. The game needs to handhold them through it. Well, obviously, if you're building something for a festival for a short experience, the game doesn't have to be quite like 100% proof because we know there's going to be people around to augment the game but also to kind of help the players along so it means you can cut corners a bit you know you go well we think people would get lost on this floor at this point in the game but we don't really mind because there's going to be loads of other people playing the game anyway and there's going to be some volunteers around the space who will kind of direct them in the right direction so yeah so I find it easier and cheaper and quicker to make games that are kind of temporary than it is to make a game that's like 100% foolproof and, you know, works in every possible case.
0: John, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned immersive theatre. Is there an mm-hmm. experience that you have at the moment that we could go and be part of?
1: Uh, good question. You could you could actually. Uh, so there's a game that I've been working on for a few years now with a company called The Other Way Works. And they are a theatre company who build interactive theatre. And I'm a games company that builds theatrical games shall we say and together we've worked on a on a experience called a moment of madness which is currently touring actually it's about to go to lincoln uh, as part of the frequency festival it's been in birmingham and london and up north to stockton and hopefully next year it will tour again as well um so this is kind of our approach to immersive theater and it's a hybrid um immersive theater escape game and it takes place in a car park so oh. an an urban stakeout to give you the kind of rough overview. It's about uh, a politician who's called Michael Makerson. We think he's a good guy, but as with most politicians, he's got a bit of a, <laughs> <knows>? a shady <laughs> shady past or shady present. And what we know about today is that he is going to give some kind of press conference about a deal that he's struck um, with an electric car company, which is, you know, it's good in this kind of post- Uh, Brexit world to have connections with electric car companies so he's going to do an announcement about that in about 90 minutes time in the kind of run-up to that we know that he's going to have a meeting in a car park which perhaps has got some kind of dodgy connotation to it so that's the kind of starting point the game is played by 24 players at any one time they're split up into six teams of four and each of those teams uh, is eventually assigned a car so they're going to be staking out a car park. Uh, the car is stationary, by the way. They're not going to be driving around after him. <laughs> people always ask me that. How do you get insurance for people to drive cars? Like, <laughs> they don't. They're on a stakeout. They're supposed to be hiding. You buy a ticket and you turn up for the experience under the pretense that you're coming to a business sem- seminar. So we're hosting a kind of fake business seminar in a, in a conference center. Um, and obviously then once they come in, they get their, their uh, lanyard and things, um, which actually assigns them to a, a color-coded team. Um, they come into the space uh, and when the business seminar starts, the doors close and actually we reveal the real reason, which, as everybody in the room knows, we are working for MI5 and we're investigating this politician, Michael Mason and what he's up to. So we're, we're tasked with his mission of going into the car park, sitting in the car and kind of watching what he gets up to. This sounds great. It is actually. I'm get not sure I'm doing a really good job of selling it, but it is a really good experience. <laughs> I'm sold. Okay, come and do it. Come, come to Lincoln and do it. Um, so, yeah, so you, so you spend the kind of middle section of the game, which is 45 minutes, um, watching what he gets up to in the car park, who does he meet, and while you're kind of trying to see what he's up to, you've got a list of suspects, essentially, of who he might be meeting um, and who they are, and you can investigate them. So a lot of the story happens through uh, a mobile phone. I, as you can see the connection, I like using mobile phones. Yeah. You find a mobile phone, like a burner phone in the car, along with the collection of, of items that the MI5 has left for you. And what it turns out is that working for us is his uh, personal secretary, um, who's called Andrea. So she, she suspects he's up to something and she's working for MI5 as well. So what she's going to do is she's going to text us throughout the, throughout the like, hour or so we're in the car. And tell us what he's up to. I
0: feel like, I feel like you shouldn't tell us anymore, John. Well, I'm going to stop. stop
1: before I you get need to, to the. Stop. Yeah, I'm going to because well, cause you, there's obviously there's a, a lot that happens, um, and there's a lot that I, I'm going to give a talk on this actually later in the week where I do do all the spoilers. But ultimately, in, in this game, you're you're having this conversation with with Andrea. She's given you things to do, things to watch out for, keeps you posted as to what Michael is up to, but there are escape room style puzzles that happen. Um, so you're trying to collect information about him Um, and because it's an immersive experience you have each car has kind of leeway to go down the investigation direction they want to go so you know one particular car might investigate his relationship with his wife or another car might investigate you know what's happening with him and his business partner Um, and so then ultimately you're all going to come back together and then the players The MI5 agents get to kind of present all the information they've got and then make a decision about whether or not to kind of, you know, what should we do with this information? Should we try and stop his career or do we support him on his way to becoming prime minister? And so, we've yeah, we've been running that around the country. And actually, one of the one of the things the politician has is this kind of uh, blonde wig, which makes him very visible. Um, and it wasn't the intention when we started out, but he's, he's ended up looking quite a lot like a certain prime minister we have now.
0: Wow. Wow. Um, so so
1: uh, current. So he gets, yeah, <laughs> it's surprising. All of the stuff that, that we wrote about four years ago is all coming true. So I think we take a lot of the blame for all of the mess of the political spectrum at the moment.
0: <laughs> John, thank you so much for sharing that.
1: But I, I should I should say, because it's um, it's supported by the arts, this show, it's incredibly cheap to come to because um, it's we don't want to make uh, the cost of attending it a barrier so whereas like an escape room of 90 minutes is often 50 60 pound a person this is you know normally 40 pounds a car Um, And in some spaces, it's been entirely free, actually, which is quite nice. So there's no barrier to play in normally.
0: Brilliant, John. Thank you. Uh, We have absolutely loved speaking to you today. It's been so much fun. As I said, we'll put all of the links to all of John's um, information and the DIY tutorials and where you can go and buy those tickets in the show notes. But John, thank you for coming on Skip the Queue. It's been awesome.
1: No problem at all. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk to you both. And uh, now we can go back to talking about Tottenham, right?
0: uh maybe not we'll we'll save that for another podcast john
1: thank you so much
0: you can find links and notes from this episode and more over on our website rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast or search skip the queue on itunes and spotify to subscribe please remember to leave a rating it helps other people find us this podcast was brought to you by rubber cheese An award winning digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for visitor attractions. Find out how we can create a better experience for you and your guests
2: at rubbercheese.com.